Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. On a remote island off the coast of Maine, Lib, after years of silence, begins to weave a language out of Shakespeare's own words. A driven neurologist brought to the island to protect her commits her to a psychiatric hospital. She becomes a full-blown rebel in the hospital. Her increasing violence threatens to keep her locked up for the rest of her life as she fights for her voice and her freedom. At a tipping point for otherness in our current climate, The Sounding champions it. The film again is called The Sounding... And we're joined today by the director, writer, producer, and that would be Catherine Eaton. Catherine, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you so much, Mike. It's great to be here. Thank you. I, I did want to mention as well that this, the film stars Teddy Sears, Harris Eulin, Frankie Faison, Aaron Dark, and uh, Danny Burstein. It's a terrific cast. That's why I wanted to get that up front. Really well done. I think this is such a wonderful origin story for how this film came to pass. Tell us, tell us a little bit about what inspired this film and how you essentially played it out in front of a lot of people before, before we actually turned it into a film. Sure. Yeah. There's, there's a couple um, uh, crazy stories about how the film came to be, but the one that you're talking about is one of the, the ones that is often requested. Um, I will just say just quickly though, I do wanna jump in and just say the cast is truly outstanding, both their talent and as human beings, they're incredible people. So they're so worth supporting in this project, but in every project they do. So what happened is I was doing this series of um, artist salons when I was living in New York City, which sounds very, very um, fancy. And it, and it was actually kind of fancy, but um, it was it was through the the generosity of a lot of different people. And basically what it was is in the Roger Smith Hotel, which is on Lexington and 47th in Manhattan, they had a, um, a penthouse that had a wraparound balcony and a baby grand piano and a commercial kitchen. And so the hotels generously, they had this extraordinary artistic director, um, Matt Semler and the owner of the hotel, Jim Knowles, generously donated these things to us to be able to do these artist salons where all these artists would come and share their work, no cost. There was, I would always invite a chef who would share his or her food. I would always invite a winemaker who would share her or his wine. They would talk about how they created it. And in these salons, I was presenting this one woman show that I had written that was the genesis of, of where the, the character Liv, who weaves this language out of Shakespeare's words, came from. I was presenting pieces of this one woman show that I was beginning to create. And the artistic director saw it and he said, I really want you to perform this in our performance space that's downstairs on the corner of 47th and Lexington. And the sound is piped out onto the street. You, you're inside this glass box and people walk by and they stop and, and listen, hopefully. Um, and, uh, and I think you should perform this there. We've never done a narrative piece, but I really want to do a narrative piece there. They'd only done performance art. And I said, absolutely not. There's no way I'm going to do that. It'll be like being a monkey in a cage. I'm, I can't do it. And then he kind of wore me down. And, and a year later, he said, why are you in New York if you're not doing these, these crazy things that we get to do in New York? And I agreed with him. So I brought the director of the play, Derek Campbell, who's extraordinary and um, a my wonderful production designer down. They created this incredible show where I was inside this glass box in a gown 
scrawled in Shakespeare, um, speaking this language that Liv has taken on. And it became this kind of cult hit. So the sidewalks became packed and the police had to come because it became a fire hazard and cars would stop in the intersection and they wouldn't drive on. People were honking and stockbrokers would come. I'm assuming they're stockbrokers. They had cell phones and fancy suits and I don't know, briefcases, but they would stand under the um, abandoned phone booths to keep the rain off and, and talk on their phones while they were watching me. And I could hear them saying, you know, there's this crazy woman in a gown and Shakespeare spouting Shakespeare. And um, pizza delivery guys came and their pizzas would get cold and parents with kids and and um, people who were suffering from homelessness would come. There was this one man who would bang on the glass and say, I'll get you out. I'll get you out. And every night there was a man who stood front and center wearing a tuxedo. And he came sometimes with family or people. I didn't know who they were at the time. And um, sometimes on his own. And the guys in the back jokingly called him the financier. And they said, oh, did the financier come tonight? And the last night of the play, of this run of the play, uh, he waited for me afterwards and said, I want to turn your play into a feature film. And he changed my life. I had no ambition to direct film at that, at that time or write for the screen. Right. And I took this play and and we went through a long journey together and and with um his team and my team and and eventually brought it to this point now so it's really incredible very much a cinderella story there's so much that's incredible about that story but the the one last thing i guess because that's where it ends is that he actually turned out to be a financier which is yes he did yeah he did i thought he was a caterer because i didn't know anyone who wore a tuxedo every day <laughs> but um no it was because he was a fancy person that's why <laughs> yeah he's an extraordinary man actually an incredible human being and and uh, i've become very close to him and his family so so were you always going to direct it were you always going to star in it those are kind of two separate questions Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, I was always going to play Liv because I had written the part for myself um, as a stage play and I came up as an actor. That's at that time. That's what I did. That's all I did um, and loved it and still love it passionately. So I was always going to play Liv. There was a time when I was considering hiring or bringing on a director because I had never directed before and I didn't know anything about directing film and it just didn't see, it wasn't even within my sort of imagination that I would take it on. And then we ended up bringing on wonderful producers and other investors. And at a certain point they, and we would go in and pitch and I would talk visually about what the film should look like, right? To try to help agencies identify the right director for the project. Right. And eventually the investors and the producers got together and came to me and said, we really think you should direct the project. You know what it is, you know, the storytelling, you know, what it should look like and you love actors, you know how to work with actors. So, and I had done production work as a side job, oddly. I had freelanced with um, uh, um, news crews. So I had had some, as just my money job, so outside of acting when I was coming up. Um, so I had had some production experience and I, I didn't know whether to say yes to that or not. And then I directed a short as a kind of lab for this feature okay. and I acted in that short as well. And it was the most creatively rewarding thing I'd ever done. So from that point forward, I, I knew I was going to fall on my own sword if there was a sword to fall on, <laughs> but that I would definitely take it on. And I, and I would never look back now. It's, it's a, an absolute joy for me. Yeah. Well, this is a beautiful look to the film, the sounding. 
And I am projecting here when I ask you this question, and that is, if I was embarking on a film like this, one of the first positions that I would lock down would be cinematographer. Mm-hmm. And David Cruda, Cruda. Mm-hmm. Uh, did a great job. Yeah, he's wonderful. He's a wonderfully talented cinematographer. Yeah. And he was also a delight to work with because I was learning the language, how to communicate what it was that I wanted, what I could see visually. And he's incredible with first-time directors. I'm not the first, uh, first-time feature directors, and I'm not the first director that he's worked with who it's their first feature. But he really can take what you're saying, translate it, and own it, and then realize it in this incredibly beautiful way. He's also very nimble, very fast, yeah. um, a delight to work with, brings wonderful people in on his team, in his department, um, right. which was really important to me. Everyone that was on set was a it was something I took very personally in terms of who was going to be on board with us for this journey because we were going to Maine to shoot to this very remote island and shooting at a monastery in New York and so it was really important he's fantastic yeah, yeah. and he won a, a wonderful award for his his cinematography Ellen Kuras who is the um, cinematographer behind uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and is amazing and legendary she awarded the film with best cinematography and and wrote a lengthy description about how the direction and the cinematography worked hand in hand in the film so that's fantastic. Uh, th- th- that almost has to be a telepathic relationship between a director and a cinematographer, because as you, I'm, I'd imagine that even though you have someone who is willing to go out on a limb for you, they, I'm sure that the budget was was tight to make a film like this. Yeah, I mean, it's it it wasn't. It's not a big budget. It's not you know. It's not a. a um, it didn't have a big studio behind it. Um, How many shooting days? How many shooting days did you have? We had twenty. We did a. Um, uh, we did do a two day pickup after that. So so I think twenty two total. But that's what um, I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. Maybe not yeah. the budget so much as. You know your shooting you schedule. Fast. Yeah, yeah, it is because you have a lot of interiors and you you have a fair amount of exteriors. So that's why I was I'm kind of sort of fixated on this particular part of it. And so that's at 20 days and a lot of shooting days. That's really filmmaking on on roller skates in a lot of ways. You have to move very quickly. And I will say too, I think you have to have if you're a director actor. Yeah. which there's many, many more of us coming up now. Um, I, I now also direct things I'm not in and I act in things that I don't direct. But when you are directing and acting, you have to have a really particular relationship with your DP because there's a huge amount. Once you establish your footing um, and he, and you recognize that he or she has your your vision and understands it and and is obviously using their incredible talent to make it extraordinary, you then have to trust that that's happening because there isn't time to watch replays of everything. And when you're in front of the camera, right. that's what has to happen. If you're going to see it, you have to you have to go and watch the replay at the monitor, and that takes a lot of time. Right. So, um, because under normal circumstances, of course, the director who isn't performing in the scene can watch the scene as it is happening. But when you're in it, you have to watch it, and so you do end up with a really specific like you really need to trust each other so yeah my hats off to anyone who can pull off what you're talking about this sort of triple crown of writing it being the lead actor and then directing it as well that's a it's an incredible amount of work and trust as well as you're describing it well let's i haven't done service to the actual story itself i'm sort of fixated on that part of it because it's a beautiful look it, it is uh 
it just, yeah, I mean, there's so many things to like about the way it looks and the way it plays out. But let's talk about Liv and this wonderful relationship that we see at the very beginning of the film with uh, Harris Eulen and who is this sort of mentor, grandfather, He's so many different things. And what a wonderful interplay between the two of you, because he has such a great presence. I've seen him in so many things. We've all he's seen amazing. him. In, I he know just he's has in, this bearing. Yeah, he's amazing for folks at home. He's in Ozark and he's in Ghostbusters and he's in um, uh, Training Day. And he's I mean, he's he's an incredible actor. He's also Shakespearean trained. And he directs Shakespeare and he's just, an, he's, and he's an incredible human being as well. Where he, he is, a, I have a dear place in my heart for him. He was an utter joy to work with, a huge gift to me. We, we offered him the role. We did not obviously have him audition, but, but he also didn't ask to meet me first. He read the script, which the script was actually co-written between myself and Brian Delaney, who's a fantastic writer, who I, I was lucky enough to have on set. So when there was pressure or um, concerns around anything in the script, he was there gotcha. uh, if I was unable to kind of address those things. Right. But um, Harris read the script and he accepted the role. And then he said, now I want to meet her. Now I need to sit down with her and see who she is who wrote, who created this thing. And he invited me to watch a production of Shakespeare that he was directing at Juilliard. So I went to watch the show. And of course, it's a little bit of, you're being schooled by one of the greats in those situations. And so I went to watch the, the, the show and it was extraordinary production. And then afterwards we had tea and I ended up not leaving. I, we stayed in the cafe. He had friends come for dinner. We stayed for hours and I just, he's just ferociously smart he he puts pressure on the script in order to make everything matter and everything makes sense you know once he once he believes in what's there he'll he can do anything that you ask anything right. he feels like he would be also a calming presence on set i mean just to watch him just has many things as we've seen him in he just comes off as that kind of a person he's a leader really i mean he's okay. he has a real energy of I don't know. I think this happens a lot with with veteran actors that are really extraordinary. But his presence on set set the tone for for a lot of people, you know, because yeah. he cared so much and he took it so seriously and he was so gracious with me and really took my direction and and let me lead him at least as far as I could see. Um, and then it ended up being this extraordinary performance. And I think that sets the tone for other people. So it's a, it, it gives a dignity to yeah. things, you know, that's really extraordinary. I want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with uh, Catherine Eaton and the film is called The Sounding. And how can people see The Sounding? I know we're in a lot of virtual theater situations now. How can people see the sound. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. We um, were scheduled for a theatrical nationwide theatrical release that was scheduled for May. And sadly, we all know what happened there as the cinemas were shuttered. So we have pivoted and um, we are now being released on wide release uh, on demand. So anywhere that you buy content is where you'll find it. All kinds of cable platforms, Apple TV, Amazon Prime, uh, Vimeo, Fandango, all of those kinds of places. So if you go to our website, thesoundingfilm.com, you'll be able to see every place that you can you can purchase the film or rent the film to to watch it. And that's starting today. That's starting today. Yeah. There and go. there's also really fun events coming up around the film that are free for folks and some wonderful contests and things like that too. So it's all there for you. Thesoundingfilm.com. 
again, I feel I feel as if I'm I might be committing uh, interviewer malpractice by not getting more into the actual story of this young woman who has remained silent for as long as we know of in the in her in the, on this island. Tell us a little bit about that part of, of the sounding, why and how, and more details. Sure, around the story you mean yeah, specifically about, yeah, around yeah, the yeah, story. Yeah. <laughs> of course. So she grew up on this island with her grandfather Lionel, who's played by Harris Eulin. She spoke when she was very, very, very small, and then she stopped speaking, and nobody knew why. So he spent his life and committed his life to trying to help her, trying to fill her world with words. And at a certain point, he realized or believes that this was her choice and that he was just going to support it. So they live on this island in this community of people who accept her. And then one day, Lionel is reading to live from a book of Shakespeare, filling her world with words as he's done all his life. And he loses his voice because he's dying. And she picks up the book of Shakespeare and she begins to weave this new language for him out of Shakespeare's words as this gift of love. And meanwhile, this uh, neurologist who is uh, the son of Lionel's best friend is brought to the island. Um, Lionel is hoping that this man will end up being able to protect Liv's independence and things go badly from there. And then, and then, and then the course changes again, but it starts as this sort of lyrical romance and then it, it morphs into this personal revolution. Right. Um, and in a lot of ways, it's a film about otherness and the power of empathy yeah. and neurology and Shakespeare, if you love those things, but you don't have to, to, to um, embrace the film. And, uh, and it's also a, a testament to living boldly even when we're put inside a box, which I think a lot of us can relate to right now. Yeah. And what and this is just a very powerful performance on your part as Liv, and how you have to pull off the in the first third of the film where you don't speak at all. And then as the film progresses, things change in your life as you, you alluded to, and you end up in the most constricted kind of living that you can imagine. I mean, it's hard to imagine where Liv ends up as anything but that. And people around her are taking control of her destiny and not for the best. And the way that you're able to navigate that again, and there's some very powerful scenes in this film. It plays out beautifully. I don't, I don't know what else to say. I don't want to give any more <laughs> so away of the film. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank yeah, you so it, it, yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah, it really does. I just am trying to imagine you on set after you give one of these in some of these scenes where you just pour your soul into them and then, break character and walk over and, and, you know, try to talk with people. I mean, yeah. you know, now what was that like for you? I mean, just in making that kind of being able to transition back and forth like that. Yeah. It's a great question. It's, um, it's exhausting for sure. I mean, it's an enormous amount of energy. That's kind of the thing that I, I think about the most in terms of attacking that kind of role as a at directing and acting again is just the level of, you know, you're, you end up being the first person on set because you need to go through hair and makeup before your crew arrives to set up the lights and cameras. So you can work with your crew instead of being in the hair and makeup chair and then go in front of the camera to do the work. And then if it's really emotionally, um, vulnerable work or, or accessible work, then there's a lot happening. But the thing is, is your joy carries you through it. There's nothing that feels as alive, I think, 
than this combination for me anyway, of performing and directing, because right. you're using every single part of yourself. Yeah. As an actor, you're using, you use a huge amount of yourself as an actor anyway, because it's corporeal and you're, and you have your emotions and your intellect and your imagination, of course. But as a director, you're using all that and you're having to understand technically what's happening. You're having to work with your team and your collaborators, trust them, bring the best out of them, hold the space for the vision of the film at the same time. I mean, it's such a brilliant ride that it feeds you as well. So yes, I would jump out of those scenes and it would, I suppose it would have been perhaps you just very quickly get used to it. Yeah. And, um, and then you get the thrill of, of, of setting up the next shot. Does that allow you to look at your performance or feel your performance when you go back and forth like that? Can you create a more clinical and objective observation of what you're doing and then high-fiving everyone as you all, all around the side? You know what I mean? There's kind of like, yeah, you kind of get in that space, I assume, where you, you know, objectively what went well and what didn't go well, but then that energy that would be propelling you around the set as you, as you go through this, is that... That right? Yeah, that's, I'd say that's true. I don't know. Um, I don't know if I would say that I was ever objective, but I'm not sure that in this case for this particular film, of course, in my um, assessment of my own work, I had to be, right? Did I, mean. I, did I, did I hit that or didn't I? And also in my assessment of my um, collaborators, right? So I'd be in a scene with someone extraordinary, like Danny Burstein or Frankie Faison or Lucy Owen or Deborah Rain or any of, of the wonderful talent in the film. And I'd have to be able to assess, I'd, I'd be in the scene with them, trusting them, believing them, playing with them. And then the minute that I called cut, I needed to assess whether they gave me everything I needed for the film, right? right. As opposed to I mean. me as yeah. Liv. Yeah. And that I did, I did find, um, it came naturally for me. It came naturally for me. I, I don't know, I don't know if that's normal or not, but it felt it felt natural to me, yeah. um, but I did know the character of Liv extremely well going into this film. So slipping in and out of her wasn't, uh, she, you know, I was, I knew who she was. I had really explored her um, a lot because I had done the stage play and I'd also done some kind of independent research around her. And I'd, so I'd done a lot of the acting work before I got to set. So my time on set, a huge amount of that for me was really about, can I be the best director I can be? Yeah, And that's what I tried to be. And I'll say it again, it's a terrific performance. And one of the things that I really like, and it's I know it's not an easy thing to do, is to incrementally bring Liv's character along so that when she makes what I'll call a transition, there's there's a couple of different transitions for her as a character, but making that transition into the world where she is for the last half of the film and how you navigate that is is really well done. I really thought there's a couple of key scenes in that part of that that <laughs> I thought you really pull off really well when you Thank begin you. this other part of what you in, in really kind of a survival mode in, in, a, in a lot of ways what you're what you're doing. So just as an just as watching you as a performer, I, I just really appreciate it because that is not easy to do to be able to keep your character consistent and yet at the same time be able to make that move from one one place to another emotionally and physically and other ways as you do so thank yeah. you so much thanks i had i did have i will say um you know yourself that films are an enormous amount of people and energy and time and 
imaginations, right? And a lot of people came to play to support that work. Definitely, you know, some of it is internal and has to be done by the actor or the performer, but it's certainly my my uh, costume designer, my hair and makeup, my production designer, Rocio Jimenez. They were all amazing in terms of supporting that transformation that happens to live. So um, I felt very fortunate. Catherine Eaton, congratulations on the oh, sounding. Oh, that's so good of you. Thank you. Thanks yeah, so and much. you're very welcome. Again, you can find out all you need to know about the film by going to thesoundingfilm.com. Today, you can watch this on all the platforms that you can imagine, iTunes, Apple, uh, um, Amazon Prime, Fandango, lots of cable providers, Vimeo, all those places. Great. Thesoundingfilm.com. Okay. And I can't imagine that you're not thinking about another project coming up. So whenever and however that occurs, uh, I hope you'll come back and join us. Oh, I'd love to. I would love to. Thank you so much, Mike. It's a total pleasure. Thank you. Again, the film is called The Sounding, and we've been talking with the writer, director, lead actor, and woman about town, and that would be Catherine (laughs) Catherine Eaton. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mike. It's been a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Thank you.